Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, writer James Bradley chats with acclaimed fantasy author Garth Nix about Garth's highly anticipated new novel, The Left-Handed Booksellers of London. Now, a quick reminder, this is a recording of an event that was held live over the internet, and as a result, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. To kick us off, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. It is my pleasure, actually, it's my honour to introduce you tonight to James Bradley. He's a bloke that's written a few books. He's made a few comments about other books. He's also, and not everybody knows this, but everybody should, he's a poet. He's going to be chatting with his mate Garth Nix about Garth's new book, The Left-Handed Booksellers of London. It's a pretty great read. You could even believe that Garth has spent some time in bookshops. Let's make James and Garth very, very welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. Um, uh, It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be here with Garth. Um, Look, I wanted to begin also by um, echoing Christine's uh, acknowledgement of traditional owners, where she is. Garth and I obviously are not um, where Christine is, we're up in Sydney, and I'd like to begin before we do anything to by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which Garth and I are tonight, which is the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, and to pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, now, look, I'm delighted to be here tonight with Garth. Um, Garth is, as well as one of my favourite writers, one of my kind of oldest and kind of dearest friends. So it's kind of lovely to be here with him. Um, I want to start by telling a story. So about 15 years ago, Garth and I were at Byron Bay Writers Festival and we were doing this actually horrendous session where it was freezing cold and it poured with rain. But at the beginning of the session, I was sitting next to Garth and they introduced him and said, this is Garth Nix. He sold 3 million books. And I remember looking at him and thinking, my God, like, you know, like I knew he'd sold some books. I had no idea it was that many. And eventually we're we're walking out and I looked at Garth and I said, have you really sold 3 million books, Garth? And he said, actually, it's more like four these days, James. Um, And I um, I remember thinking, you're not making it any better at this point, Garth. Um, But uh, (laughs) that figure is now considerably higher. I know that. And I kind of side that not because I think the books are a kind of, you know, the books are a marker of a kind of commercial success and that's wonderful. But what they really show, I think, is the kind of, the kind of affection people have for Garth's writing, the kind of joy it's brought to people, um, the kind of love people have for his books. It's over the last 30 years. And I think that's a kind of really wonderful, it's a kind of really wonderful thing. Um, now, central to Garth's work, as I'm sure most of you know, are a series of books, the Old Kingdom books. Um, there's the original trilogy, Sabriel, Liriel, and Aporson, and now there's two more, Golden Hand and Clariel. Um, they are, you know, I think they're marvellous books. They're amongst my favourite books. Um, they've got this kind of massive sweep. Um, they are incredibly dense at a kind of imaginative level, but they're kind of, there's a kind of, emotional depth to them that makes them really special. I always think that there's a kind of, you know, they're funny, they're warm, they're generous, but they're also books that kind of dig into a whole lot of questions about kind of rage and pain and loss in a really, really sophisticated kind of way. Um, alongside those, Garth has produced a, you know, 
a number of other books, a number of other series. There's the Keys to the Kingdom series. There's the Seventh Tower series. There's uh, two series he wrote in conjunction with um, our mutual friend Sean Williams, uh, Trouble Twisters and Have Sort of Travel. Uh, there's a number of collections of stories and other things. Um, but there's also a number of kind of standalone novels. Um, there's a, a wonderful science fiction novel from about 10 years ago called A Confusion of Princes. There's Newt's Emerald. Um, which is a kind of Regency book, which is fantastic. Um, there's, a, there's Frog Kisser, which is a book I adore. It's hilarious and it's delightful and it's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, I loved it. My 10-year-old daughter loved it. Like it's that kind of, that kind of book. And uh, most recently there's Angel Mage. Um, and most importantly, there's the book we're here to discuss tonight, which is The Left-Handed Booksellers of London. I have a copy here I can hold up. Um, this is my kind of hand modelling with the art with the book. Um, now, I need to say up front that I loved this book. Um, I read it uh, in kind of two sittings in proof. Uh, and I remember texting Garth as I finished it and saying, I love this book. I think it's possibly your best book. Yeah, you know, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, uh, it's set in 1983 uh, in England. Um, Margaret Thatcher has just won the election. Uh, um, I think Margaret Thatcher, the election is coming up, sorry. Um, uh, you know, but it, it's set in a kind of England convulsed by Thatcherism. And, and it's about a young woman called Susan Arkshaw who is searching for the identity of her father and kind of her father and kind of stumbles into this kind of hidden world of magical creatures and elder powers. And kind of just as importantly, this kind of ancient order of booksellers who, who double as a kind of magical security service. Um, they're kind of like a magical men in black kind of thing, except they're kind of the men and women in brown corduroy and cardigans. Um, uh, and, you know, together with one of them, who's this kind of beautiful, kind of gender fluid young person called Merlin, um, Susan kind of kind of finds herself on the run and tangled up in this kind of, kind of incredibly complex conspiracy involving some very old and very evil kind of powers. Um, you know, look, I, I think it's a really joyous book in lots of ways. It's funny and it's playful and it's generous. Um, but it's also a kind of love letter to to fantasy, you know, the, the kind of genre of fantasy. And I think to the kind of British pop culture that Garth and, you know, and I grew up on. Um, uh, now, I thought tonight, I'm going to talk to Garth a bit about that. Um, I'll ask him some questions after a while. We'll open it to the floor and you can all ask some the questions. If you have questions, as Christine said, you can send them into the, the chat section and she'll pass them to us at the end. I'm sure some of you are familiar with this process by now. Um, and, um, and we'll work through them now. But I, I thought I'd begin by kind of just asking Garth kind of very generally. Um, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the origins of the book and the kind of inspiration for the book. What, what was it led you to be kind of writing it? Well, thank you, James. That's a very generous introduction. So, uh, so thank you. Thank you very much. I remember that, that horrendous Byron Bay <laughs> I, went, I remember going to town uh, trying to buy some warm clothes but there, all, we could, all we could find were t-shirts and they were all tourist t-shirts and at one point I was wearing I think three sort of Byron Bay surfer t-shirts in, in, in an effort to stay warm it was unseasonably cold it's seared, it seared in my memory that, that particular festival um, so uh, it uh, oh those happy memories um, <laughs> But in, in terms of the left-handed booksellers of London, I mean, you're absolutely right. It is a it is a love letter to uh, uh, to many things that that I love, uh, books and a kind of version of England which doesn't really exist. 
um, but I wished it did. Um, I, I should say, I mean, it is set in 1983, but it's a slightly alternate 1983 because I, I messed with the history a little bit to try and make it a more diverse and a more gender equal 1983 than actually existed, uh, which was not that difficult in many ways, uh, given how, how uh, non-equable it was. Um, so, but the things that went into it really, I think there's, there's a sort of lifetime of influences which were the intellectual fuel that were sparked off by just a chance encounter very appropriately with a bookseller um, in uh, a Waterstones in Leith, the, the port part of Edinburgh. And I was on tour for my book, Golden Hand, and I was signing copies of Golden Hand with my gold Sharpie, very uh, you know, marketing specific there. And the bookseller who was helping me, helping me was left-handed. And I think I may have been left-handed because I can write with, with my left hand and I can draw and so on. But I'm of an age where you weren't allowed to be at school. Uh, you were forced to write with your right hand. So maybe I was forced. I don't know. Uh, but members of, some members of my family are left-handed, one of my sons is and so on. So I've always been interested in left-handedness. And I noticed that the bookseller helping me was left-handed. And I just commented to him. I said, oh, you're, you're left-handed. And he said, yes, we all are. All of us in the bookshop, we're all left-handed. And then he said, and I think, he said, I think there's more left-handed people in bookshops than there are anywhere else. And something sparked in my brain. And I thought the left-handed booksellers of Leith, there's a story there. And I took that away with me. And I needed to, when I started seriously thinking about writing this story, because it was kind of like a little joke in my head, I thought I need to make this bigger. I need a bigger canvas. And the next step was to think, oh, the left-handed booksellers of London. And that naturally gave me that, that bigger canvas. And one of the things I wanted to do was that I wanted to, to capture the sensibility of some of my favourite children's fantasy writers who writing about uh, a contemporary world overlaying a mythical or magical world and with, with leakage between the two. So books like Alan Garner's The Weird Center of Brisingerman, Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising, uh, you know, books like that. I mean, and, and also some of the sort of portal fantasies like Lewis's Narnia books and so on, where, where you do have real world going to a fantasy world. But I liked, I, I wanted to particularly get the ones where they coexisted. But I didn't want to do it as a children's fantasy. I mean, though of course I do write children's fantasy. I thought I'd like to do something a bit different. And one of my other loves uh, came into play here because I also love thrillers. In fact, I... I love all kinds of, of fiction, but I, I do have a very great fondness for, uh, for thrillers and, and, and mysteries. And particularly for this book, I think there's, while there's the, the very definite influence of many great fantasy writers, particularly the children's fantasy writers, there's also a very strong influence from uh, people like Le Carre and Alistair MacLean and Desmond Bagley and Hammond Innes. And, and many others writing, uh, particularly in that, that British era of, of thriller and spy stories of the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, going into the 80s. So all, all of those things were, were influences. They, they were all already in my head just from my reading and rereading. And then it, it just took that spark of talking to that, to that left-handed bookseller uh, in Leith, which I, I thank him in the acknowledgements. And, uh, and then I spent my usual a year or more thinking about the story before I even, before I even wrote a line. 
which is pretty much my standard procedure. I, I think about things and I, and the story builds in my head or elements of the story build in my head until I, until I actually start to write. Um, sometimes it's a year or two years or 10 years. Uh, it, it varies considerably, but for this one, it was about a year or so before I, I had enough elements in my head to, to start writing the book. Okay. I mean, it, perhaps I, I wonder whether, I don't, don't know that I explained it terribly well at the beginning. Could you explain what, who the booksellers are in the book? Perhaps, yeah. for the people I guess I, yes, I, I should. I mean, I did a rubbish job of it. Sorry. No, no, you did a good job. I mean, no, no, you did a, you, you're absolutely right. They are kind of like a, a security service that pleases the, the mythic world. Um, in, in a way, I mean, the tagline kind of says it all, um, authorised to kill and sell books. Um, in this alternate 1983, uh, the booksellers are a very old uh, secret organisation whose job it is, is to police the old world, the, the mythic underworld that exists with our world, and particularly to make sure that the various entities don't emerge into the new world and don't interfere with with what's going on, don't escape their bounds and so on. The left-handed booksellers are the field agents. They're the, the fighting ones as they refer to themselves sometimes. The right-handed booksellers are the controllers and researchers. Uh, they do have their own magical abilities, but they don't fight. Uh, they're, they're, not, they're, not, uh, they're not fighters. They don't engage in combat. Their, their magic uh, is more involved with, they can influence people and do certain other things. And then there are a very few even-handed booksellers who, who have uh, the abilities of both, but they also need to make a living. And, there's, and for other reasons, they're, they're involved. They've always been involved with books. And so they run two bookshops in addition to uh, their more arcane duties. Uh, they have the new bookshop in Mayfair, which sells old and collectible editions. And then they have the old bookshop in Charing Cross Road, which sells new books. Uh, so book selling is all through the book as well as as the the thriller, the adventure stuff, um, and I guess that's sort of combining again another thing that I love: books, book selling, the book business, uh, fantasy, mythic, mythic creatures. Uh, there's m many many things that I love uh, in in this book. As as I think in all my books, I I like to write and make up things that uh, I kind of wish existed, and that's that's my. That's my modus operandi, really, is, is trying to make up stuff that I, I like. I make up things that I like. Oh, you know, best kind of book to write. Um, I mean, I was thinking about that. So one of the things I do love about the book, you were talking before about the kind of layers of reality and that kind of sense that there are layers of reality in places and layers of history is one of the things that, you know, that, that I kind of love about this book and that I love about, as, as you clearly do, about a lot of this kind of fantasy. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting is the decision to set it in 1983 and there's that famous line about um you know electric light killed the ghost story yes. like i kind of wondered whether the decision to move it back in time like that was you know it's obviously about a period that you remember but is it also about i mean do you think it's difficult to set fantasy novels in the present day because in you know in the same sense it's difficult to do ghost stories in the present day because there's kind of no room for ghosts and, and you know and is that why we need it so much at the moment is that why we kind of love them so much at the well, moment? Well, I think I would kind of disagree with you because I think there's ample room, and the failure of Electric Light is is a tremendous thing in horror <laughs> and ghost stories. Why has what's happened to the power? Um, yeah, yeah, it's all it's all in the execution, and certainly there are people who, who are writing tremendous 
contemporary fantasy and uh, dealing with all the problems of mobile phones and Google and so on, uh, enabling their characters to get out of all kinds of situations. Um, I said it in 19, it's, it's interesting because I didn't think about this when I, I said it in 1983. It was more of an instinctive move. It was only later that I realized that, oh yes, it makes a thriller much easier. No mobile phones, no Google and so on. Um, but I think the, the instinct that drove me was because I, I did first go to United Kingdom in 1983 when I was 19. And so my, my memories of that time, of, of particularly London, are very strong in that time. I, I've been back many, many times since. Um, and I've, I've spent various, quite long periods there, but, but I spent about six months in England. And so both time and place were very strong to me at that time. But it was also very important to me as a writer um, because that's when I decided I wanted to be a writer, that I was going to give it a shot. And so I bought this beat up Austin 1300, terrible car even then. I had a gold flame stripe down the bonnet, which made it go faster. Um, but I drove around and I, I, one of the things I was doing was I was rereading many of my favourite books in the places where they were set, particularly children's books. So like Rosemary Sutcliffe's The Eagle of the Ninth and Susan Cooper and Hampshire. I mean, I read The Eagle of the Ninth on Hadrian's Wall. I read Arthur Ransom's Swans and Amazons in the Lake District. Um, I read Alan Garner in Cheshire. I climbed Audley Edge and so on. So I was reacquainting myself with many of my favourite books and their, their geographical settings and also, in a way, their mythical settings. So that was an important year for me. Uh, I wrote half a novel in that time. I didn't finish it because I'd not yet learned how important it is to finish things. Half a novel is, doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, you have to, you have to finish, you know, a finished novel is a possibility. It creates possibility, but half of one doesn't. Um, so 83 was a significant year for me as a writer. And instinctively, I thought that that is the time this, this should be set. And I think it's because that is the time when I was very strongly connected, to, particularly to those children's fantasies, you know, which I loved. I read The Darkest Rising in, in, uh, in a, a, a village in Hampshire, which you know, could, could have been the one uh, that Will Stanton lived in. Um, things like that. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's a story instinct that drove me without me thinking very much further about it. But maybe some subconscious part of mine was also saying, hey, yeah, it'll also be a lot easier <laughs> because you won't have to deal with, with, with uh, all the modern problems that, that uh, ensue if you, if you make it completely contemporary. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that's really interesting about the book as well is that it's like it, it manages to be, it's very kind of self-aware and very, I mean, even kind of knowing, you know, there's a wonderful moment where one of the booksellers is complaining about the bloody fantasy writers who keep guessing all of the yeah, stuff Merlin, that they're trying to keep six Merlin who complains. Yeah, Merlin complains about children's fantasy writers because they reveal too much. Yeah, they reveal they, too much. They accidentally, uh, let, you know, inform people how to release entities or raise things that should be left alone and so on. And uh, they cause them a lot of trouble. But, but the, it, it always feels very playful. And it seems to me there's a real, there's a kind of line with that kind of thing where you don't want it to lurch into being kind of smart ass or, you know, to use a technical term, um, or, <laughs> or to self-parodical. Self yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very, but there is a kind of, 
tonal line you need to stay behind. And is it difficult to strike that balance when you're writing a book, which is so obviously kind of playing affectionately with, with, with other, with other works? Yeah, and there there were certainly uh, there were certainly times where I I think I didn't get it right and had to fix it up. Um, so as with anything I've ever written, uh, some parts of the book had very high levels of revision, including whole sections being thrown out and rewritten, um, and other parts had to be sort of sanded back and repolished. Um, so yeah, that, I, that's absolutely right. I, I think writing it would be very easy to to go over the line and and break break the the fourth wall or whatever you might call it without actually meaning to which would be a which would be a problem i mean i think you can as long as you can you like everything else it's all in the execution if you can do it if you can make it work it's fine but if you're if you're crossing that line by accident then of course the whole book falls apart hopefully mm. hopefully i've i've managed i've managed that trick in this book, I mean, and and uh, anecdotally, so far it seems it seems okay, but um, but I, I guess like anything else, I had to satisfy myself. If it felt right to me, uh, then I then I, I would feel it's it's going to be okay for the reader. Um, mm. In the same way that uh, in the sort of transfer of emotion, I always feel that if I can if I if I'm feeling the emotion I'm trying to impart into the story then the reader will, will feel it too. Whereas if it's, if I haven't got it, it's just words, it's just technique mm -hmm. and probably it won't actually transfer. And sure, it might, it might still work, but it, it won't work as effectively and people won't remember it or be as fond of it as they hopefully will be because it has had an effect upon them. They have felt something from the book, not just, not just, uh, not just read it and it's, and it's a disposable piece of fiction. Well, I mean, I think it's one of the things that I always love about your books is there's a kind of emotional capaciousness to them. There's a kind of sense that they're incredibly inclusive books. I mean, they, they kind of have sympathy for all the characters. There's a kind of kindness and generosity to them, which I always really like. But one of the things I've, I've always really liked about them is that there's a kind, and you talked before about, you know, kind of reworking the kind of gender and you know, kind of power relations of the London you were writing about. But I mean, that's been something that's been in your books right from the beginning, hasn't it? I mean, that kind of sense that, you know, even from the earliest Old Kingdom books, they, they inhabited a world where there was kind of no patriarchy, there was no racism, there was, no, you know, and that, and that was just a kind of given. It wasn't, it, it didn't seem to be something that you were doing necessarily to make a point. It was just kind of part of that, that kind of inclusiveness of this world, that, that it, it, it kind of assumed that, that was the world was clean. I'm kind of curious. I mean, obviously with this one, it was a kind of conscious decision to kind of rework a historical situation. But when you were writing those earlier books, was it a kind of conscious decision to write like that? Or was it just something that kind of happened? And, 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 and do you think there is a, a role for kind of, particularly books for younger people to be presenting that kind of, you know, kind of doing away with some of those barriers in the writing? Sure. I mean, it, it was just, again, kind of instinctual when I started. Um, and I think it comes back again to wanting to create worlds that I want to exist. And I wanted, I wanted, it, I wanted them to be uh, worlds of equal opportunity, even whilst all kinds of other horrendous things happen. I didn't want it to be based upon uh, 
upon, upon gender race, but it wasn't intellectual. It wasn't a very conscious decision. And in fact, um, in many ways, I think it was kind of a happy accident because when I was writing Sabriel, and this is a very long time ago, and you can say Sabriel or Sabriel, I always add that because I flip-flop myself. So in the early 90s, when I was writing Sabriel, you know, I'd thought about it. I had some initial ideas. I knew I was going to write about these kind of anti-necromancers who, who made the dead stay dead. And then I thought about it for quite a long time. And then I started to write. And I did what I normally do, which is write a, a passage that is kind of a proof of concept. So it might be the prologue. It might be chapter one. It might be some other part of the text, which never, in fact, ever gets in the book. Um, for Sabriel, it was the prologue. And I really didn't know very much. And when I started writing that prologue, I thought it would be, the book was going to be, a, probably going to be about Sabriel's father. But in the course of writing the prologue, where she's, she's born and, and her father, but her father brings her back from death, I won't go into that, but it's, it's in the first few pages of the book. Um, I realised that she was much more interesting. And then I also thought, oh, well, A, she's more interesting, B, there's not that many books with young women protagonists of this kind, this sort of high fantasy. Um, the ones that, that, were, that did exist were fantastic. And there's some absolutely brilliant books who were a big influence on me. Uh, like, um, well, I mean, I've got one right here because I just, I just bought it again, The Blue Sword, Robin McKinley, um, and The Hero and the Crown, um, Ursula Le Guin's you know, The Terms of Atuan. And so on. there was a, a bunch, but there weren't that many of them. So I thought, okay, well, that's, that's a good reason to another good reason. Um, but making it a, the old kingdom, you know, particular, uh, totally a gender equal place just was instinct. And then I just, it wasn't until really much, much later people asked me about it or pointed it out that I thought, Oh, um, well, of course that actually would be better. But, but I think probably all that, you know, I owe to, uh, I owe to my, my mother and to the many strong women I grew up with. Um, I shouldn't use them. I mean, the word strong women is ludicrous. The, the, the many you know, super capable and competent women who I always knew from when I was very young, including people that I grew up with, my contemporaries, and then working in publishing for years, uh, you know, working with, you know, with all my bosses, women, they're always uh, you know, people to look up to and who were tremendous at their jobs and uh, I think that, that all feeds into all feeds into that. So, yeah, it's with this book. I did have to be more conscious of it because I thought, oh well, I am taking England in 1983, and for a little while I thought, do I do I make it 1983? Do I actually make it like it was? And I thought, no, why should I? You know, it, it, I can make it work as a as a as a different version. Um, the, the sort of idea, it, it comes back to that, that idea that if you're writing a medieval fantasy, it's a medieval fantasy. You can have dragons, but you can't change the gender roles. Yeah. It's a ridiculous notion. Of course, you can, you, can do, you can change anything as long as you can make it work, uh, as long as it, as it works within the story. Um, so a happy accident that, uh, that I've continued and uh, I think is, is just, again, uh, part of my sort of instinctual process so that's how things should be and so that's how they should be in the books as well as in in real life you you, you were talking about the old kingdom a moment ago and i thought i might ask you a couple of quick old king questions um one of the things i always wonder about is what it must be like when you've now written five old kingdom novels you're writing a sixth and you've written various other things set in the world what's it i mean 
what's it like going back to it like that over and over again? I mean, is there a, does it begin, does it feel comfortable when you go back to it? Does it sometimes feel constrained? I mean, do you feel that, I mean, does it, when you're a reader, you always feel with those novels that there's huge amounts that's kind of off the page. You know, what you're getting is a tiny bit of a very large world, which is kind of lovely. But, but as a writer, when you go back to it, particularly as the history becomes more and more complicated, like, do you feel... Is it harder to find stories in that world? Is it easier no, to find? It, it's easy to find stories. I never go, I actually don't go back unless I have a story. I mean, the sort of, uh, the publishing, the, the publishing truism would be uh, that you should always just continue writing the same books. If they work, keep, keep doing the same thing. Uh, if, if all you want to do is, is sell books. Unfortunately, uh, I've always been supported by my publishers who, while they would, since really from the beginning, would actually just love another Old Kingdom book, they've always supported me to do other things as well, as well which have also worked out. Um, but the, the known is always very attractive to, to, to publishing houses. Understandably, I mean, I, I worked in publishing for many years and, and, uh, and, and also was very keen on, on things that, that had worked before. Um, but I don't go back to the Old Kingdom unless I do have, I found a story to tell. When I... But when I do do that, I, I do find it difficult because I have to reread my own work to remind myself of many details. Uh, and I don't like going back and rereading my own work. Uh, I like to, to forge ahead writing new things. It's not one of my favourite things to, to go back and reread my own books. I'm not one of those authors who wants to have like a director's cut of some past book because you know, I could do a better job or, or something. They, 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 they are creations of, of their time and they exist and they, they kind of feel to me like human beings or children that have grown up and gone off and sort of recalling them to reshape them would feel very strange indeed. Um, so having to go back to them is, is quite difficult. I'm actually greatly aided by all the very kind readers who've created wikis uh, of, of the works. It's very useful. Um, every now and again, I've seen something that's wrong, but it's, it's actually, they're generally pretty good and they're, they're often incredibly useful to remind me of where I need to look in my own work to, uh, to, to, to remember some details or some, some key facts that I need for my, my new work. I can, I can uh, look at, look at a, a wiki or even in fact, just the Wikipedia entries on the books are very good. Thank you, unknown wiki persons. Um, and that can help me find, uh, find my own work. Uh, because yes, over a long period of time, uh, I've written a lot of stuff and, uh, so I, I don't always remember all the details, which can be tricky when people ask me very detailed questions. So, so I'm, I'm sure you're not the only writer no. who knows that feeling of Googling your own work to, uh, to um, find out the, um, <laughs> to find out what your, what your, you know, some detail about it. Um, look, I, we're going to have, we've got some questions coming in. If people have more of them, please give them, uh, please put them through in the chat and we'll ask them in a moment. We'll ask them a, uh, I'm unable to finish the sentence. Please send more questions through. That would be great. Um, before we do that, I just wanted to ask Garth one more question, which is, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you're working on now. I know you're working on a new Old Kingdom book. Could you tell us a little bit sure. about it, maybe? Um, yes, I'm working on a book called Tercial and Eleanor, which the title kind of gives it away. Tercial is Sabriel's father. Um, his name is mentioned once in the original trilogy. Um, people sometimes ask me, what is his name? And I say, well, it is in the books if you look. Um, so Tercial and Eleanor is obviously a prequel. Uh, Eleanor is Sabriel's mother. 
So I think even just from the title, you get a pretty good idea of what it's, what it's going to be about. Um, I don't like to talk too much about books before they're done. Um, I've actually had quite a lot of trouble with this one this year, along with many other creative artists. I think 2020 is uh, not going to be known as a, as a year of uh, huge amounts of work uh, being created. I think everyone's had difficulties. I've had a lot of backwards and forwards with this one, which is not, which is not uncommon. Um, so Tercial and Eleanor, about Sabriel's parents, uh, and all being well, it's, it hopefully still will be out this time next year, fingers, fingers crossed and <laughs> knock on wood and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, look, perhaps we should, I've got some questions here from sure, the yeah. audience. Yeah. Um, I've got one from Dominic, which is that, uh, Garth, you've always written such kind of beautiful, strong, dynamic, we've covered some of this before, but maybe take it a little bit further, kind of strong, dynamic, kind of female and kind of gender fluid characters. I mean, has the way you've written them changed through, as your kind of, I guess it's kind of debates around this have changed over time. That's an interesting question. Um, I think it probably has in the sense that uh, as, as you know, our culture's changed and, you know, topics of gender and identity have become much more frequently discussed. I've tried to educate myself more than I, I certainly was when I, I, was writing earlier on, um, and I've tried to, I've tried to, uh, you know, learn more about all the, the many, many different possibilities of gender and, and how people feel about it and how they express it and how they want to have it expressed and discussed and so on. So I guess I've certainly, I hope, uh, you know, tried to think about it in a respectful way rather than, than just um, deploying it as part of, of, of a story or a character, if that makes sense. So I think, mm. I, hope I've, I hope that uh, I've, I've become more thoughtful about that and, and many other things. Hmm, that's interesting. All right, I've got another question here from Sarah, who is asking whether left-handed booksellers is a standalone book or whether, be, whether there will be more. Well, I always laugh because almost everything I've written has the possibility of more. Um, in fact, uh, another mutual friend of ours, uh, who I won't name, but you can guess who it is, James, said to me once that all my short stories felt like they were part of bigger things. Um, and I wasn't sure this, this was a compliment or, or actually an insult. Um, Frequently not with the friend we're talking about. <laughs> but it was, it was a, actually, he did mean it as a compliment. Um, and... Uh, and I and I took it that way, and I I like that feel. I like to I like to have that feeling myself. I like my stories to feel as if they are part of bigger things, as long as they also provide a self-contained experience. So you don't feel as if what the hell I'm missing out on all this stuff. It's like yes, this this is a complete story, but there is it's part of more things, a bigger world. Um, and certainly with all, all my books, that's that's true. I mean, I have notes for sequels or prequels or associated books, almost everything, um, including the left-handed booksellers of London, where I, I do have, I have notes and I even have a title, uh, which I, I often do have titles very early on uh, for, for another book in, in that world. So uh, it, who knows? I mean, it may end up with all the other notes and little mental, uh, mental bullet points 
uh, for other works, or it may be, in fact, you know, what comes up next. I just don't know. I, I, I always feel like I've got a kind of queue of, of, of ideas marching through my head, and, but they're not fully formed. They're, they're bits and pieces. They're sort of shambolic messes quite often, but still moving and always gathering and, uh, and building. And eventually one of them will, will achieve a sort of critical mass and push to the front of the queue. And I think, well, that's what I'm going to do next. That's, that's my next book. And, and then I have to convince my publishers that, yes, they would like that, even though it may not be anything at all like what they've uh, been expecting or, or I've done before. Okay. Uh, are titles important to you? I mean, are titles something that... Yes. Yes. I mean, you <laughs> find a title and the book comes from the title or... To a degree, um, I think titles, are, like names, very important. And the names to me are always very important in, in everything. I think they're, they're often particularly important in a fantasy novel uh, because the, there's a resonance and connections you're often looking for uh, along with many of the other elements in a fantasy novel, you know, connecting to myth and legend and fairy stories and so on. Um, but yeah, book titles, I think, are, are important. And uh, book covers are important. They're, they're, all, they're all important. They all communicate something to a potential reader. So I, I, do, think, I, do, I do think they're often uh, uh, helpful from the very beginning to, to, to the end when they're, they're trying to get into the, the hands of readers. So yes, I, I do think titles titles are important. Hmm. Okay. Um. Now I have a question here, which from Amy, which is a question that I must say I've asked you, and ah. I'm not sure that I feel any clearer about it than I have ever <laughs> felt. Um. So Amy, you know, I share your befuddlement of what you're about to ask. Um. She wants to know a little bit more about how you collaborate with Sean Williams on the Have Sword books. I mean, how does that process of collaboration work? We've described this to you, James. I know, and I still can't imagine it. It's without my failure of imagination yeah, rather than your explanation. Maybe we, should, maybe we should make a video. We should make an instructional <laughs> video. Um, so, yeah, Sean and I wrote the Trouble Twisters books together and then the Have Sword will, will Travel books. And we also, um, a Spirit Animals book, which is part of a multi-author uh, scholastic series, uh, sort of a big franchise thing. Um, so typically what we'd do is we'd spend a lot of time talking about it, often over a Guinness or a cup of tea, uh, not in, often not in person because Sean's in Adelaide and I'm in Sydney, and would kick ideas backwards and forwards and make notes. And from that, that just general talking about story and characters, uh, we'd write, would eventually write an outline, the, the two of us together, kicking it backwards and forwards. We'd write quite a detailed chapter outline of what happens. I always write chapter outlines. For my own books, I don't follow them. My chapter outlines bear almost no resemblance to the books. But for the ones with Sean, they mostly followed, both of us mostly followed them. And then I would write the first chapter to set the tone and establish uh, the characters. And then Sean, who writes very quickly and well, would write the first draft of all the rest of the book. Um, and then he'd send it back to me and I would re rewrite it and revise it. And then I'll send it back to him and he'd rewrite it and revise it. And eventually we would come to a point where the, the book is done. And for both of us, we can look at that. We can look at those books and neither of us can pick who wrote what. And we've actually complimented each other on particular passages and said, Oh, that was great. I mean, you did a good job there. And it's like, no, I didn't write that. You wrote that. And I'm like, no, I didn't. I'm sure I didn't. Did I write that? Um, so we've, we've always enjoyed, enjoyed that. Uh, the fact that you can't tell who, who wrote what. And we actually did reverse that 
that general process for the Spirit Animals book because Sean was busy doing something else. I wrote the first draft very quickly of, of the Spirit Animals book and then he, he did the first revision. And again, the, the same thing applies. We look at that and don't know who wrote what. So that's, that's one way of, of co-writing. Um, the, the people, co- people who co-write have so many different ways to, to do this. It's like writing a novel. There's a million, there's a million different ways to write a novel, a million different techniques. Um, so that one has worked very well for Sean and I, um, and it's been fun. It's enjoyable. Uh, but uh, there's lots and lots of other ways. But people do alternate chapters and all, all kinds of wacky stuff. So mm. many writing together on screen and you know using various sharing programs and all that kind of stuff. Taking in turns to do you know, characters' dialogue and all, all that. That's that's that all sounds too finickety to me, but uh, whatever works. It's mm, interesting. Um, Amy, if you haven't read, I mean, I don't know if you've only read the Have Sword books. Sean's books are terrific. I mean, I, I, yes. I, I highly recommend um, the new ones, uh, Her Perilous Mansion. Her Perilous Mansion, Which is yeah. terrific, but the, 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 the Twin Maker books are terrific as well. Um, uh, his YA novel from a year or two ago, Impossible Music, is terrific. He's a wonderful writer. Um, uh, all right, uh, we're going to ask one more question and then I, I, I think we're going to have to finish, unfortunately. Um, so Janet's asked about kind of a, a kind of practical question, like um, do you, when you're work writing, do you work kind of regular hours? What's your process look like at a kind of practical level? Okay. Um, my, my process has changed over the years. I wrote many of my books, uh, my first dozen books or so, I wrote while having very busy day jobs. Uh, I was working in publishing uh, in various roles. I mean, I was a bookseller and then I, I worked in many different roles in publishing. Uh, then I got out for a while and I worked, uh, I was a partner in a PR agency, uh, mainly working for IT clients, uh, sort of 24 seven on the call sort of stuff. And then I went back to publishing as a literary agent with Curtis Brown. Uh, and then I, I eventually, I couldn't balance both. And, and I've been a full-time writer for luckily, um, and a lot of it is luck. Uh, for the last 20 years or so. But when I was, when I had my very busy day jobs, I used to write a couple of evenings a week and Sunday afternoons, most Sunday afternoons. Uh, so, you know, two or three hours, Tuesday, Thursday nights, four or five hours, Sunday afternoon. If you do that religiously in a year or a year and a half, you can write a book. Uh, it's, it's possible to, to, to do so. Um, I, since I've been a full-time writer, I kind of swapped back to a degree because now I write probably two or three hours every afternoon, sometimes more. Um, there's a lot of other time I spend uh, sort of managing the small business that a writer has if you've been doing this a long time and, and have lots of books in different places and so on. There's, there's the sort of small business aspect. There's also the promotional side of things. There's nearly always something going on that requires you to answer 10 questions or write a piece or whatever. Uh, there's all, all that sort of nitty gritty of a, of, a, of a writer's practical life. Um, but I still do also write at night, particularly when I'm getting towards uh, the sort of last quarter of a book and the momentum is building and the story is very strong in my head and I want to get it out. Um, I often then at that point I start writing. Uh, I'll start writing at night. Uh, maybe I'll do a few hours. Usually by the end of a book, I'm writing three, four, five hours a night as well as during the day. Um, and I often write a book. I'll write the last third of a book in about 10% of the total time. So because I just write more and more and more and, and, and be carried along. I also revise all the time. 
um, I usually, when I add any, any writing session where I, I can't say I sit at my desk when I, I'm at my standing desk here, when I stand at my desk, but I do sit as well. Um, usually what I'll do is I'll revise what I wrote the day before, or in fact, I may go back to the beginning of, the, of my manuscript and I'll go through and do a sort of light revision all the way through before I then start again on the new work. So I typically don't sit, sit, stand. I don't address the, the keyboard with new writing in a new session. I may do because there's always exceptions to everything, but usually I'll, I'll revise and then, and then go on. There's always lots of revision, lots of, lots of rewriting. But, it, but it's important to note, everyone has different routines, does things differently. Having a routine is good. Developing a routine is good, however you do it. Um, and it's good to try what, what writers talk about um, but it's, there's no one true path or, or sort of a silver bullet routine that, that works for everyone. Uh, it's, good to, it's good to listen to different people and see what, uh, see what works for you. Okay, that's fantastic. Look, oh, we have to wind up now, unfortunately. Um, I wanted to say thank you to everybody. Well, I say thank you very much to Garth for, for being so generous with his kind of time and his thoughts. Well, thank, um, thank you, James. Yeah, and, and I wanted to thank everybody for coming. I wanted to say again, this is a fantastic book. Um, I mean, I think if you, you know, I actually do think it's one of Garth's very best books. Um, I, I, and readings have copies available. Um, uh, Christine's going to be back in a minute. And she can talk to you about how to buy them, but I, 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 I commend it to you in the highest possible terms. It's terrific. Um, so look, thank you very much, Garth. That was wonderful. Thank you everyone for listening. And I hope you've had a good time and I'll hand you back to Christine. Thank you, James. Goodness, I think that we've all had a bit of a treat tonight, haven't we? What a treat. But I want to take you all back at the moment, back to that Readings Carlton shop. Remember that we're all at the very back of the shop and it's quite crowded there and those, those windows are steamed over. And you've been fortunate enough, after you've clapped and you've clapped and you've clapped, James and Garth, you've been fortunate enough to get your copy of the Left-Handed Booksellers of London You've been fortunate enough to get it signed. You've actually gone up and met the great Garth Nix and you've made your way to the counter to pay for it because you are that type of good citizen. And it's only when you're receiving your change. It's only then, my friends, that you realise that the change has been handed to you in the left hand of the bookseller. James Bradley, Garth Nix, thank you. Thank you for honouring our trade. Thank you for being here tonight and thank you for understanding that we live, we live for these type of words. To each and every one of you out there, stay safe. You know what? Booksellers, come on. We're a little bit magical. See you next time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you could sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Thank you.